Welcome to Teleforum, a podcast of the Federal Society's practice groups. I'm Dean Reuter, Vice President, General Counsel, and Director of Practice Groups at the Federal Society. For exclusive access to live recordings of practice group Teleforum calls, become a Federal Society member today at fedsoc.org. On February 27, 2023, the Federal Society's Federalism and Separation of Powers Practice Group hosted a virtual event titled The Role of the Modern State Solicitor General, Current and Former SG's Way In. The following is the audio from that discussion. Please enjoy. Hello and welcome to this Federalist Society virtual event. My name is Jack Derwin. I'm Associate Director of the Practice Groups here at the Federalist Society. Today we're excited to host a panel discussion titled The Role of the Modern State Solicitor General, Current and Former State SG's Way In. As you might have guessed by the title, joining us on today's panel is an impressive group of four current and former state SGs. In the interest of time, we'll keep intros brief on the program, but you can view our speakers' full bios at fedsoc.org. It's my pleasure to introduce our moderator today, the Honorable Britt C. Grant, who is a judge in the United States Court of Appeals for the 11th Circuit. Judge Grant was appointed to the federal bench in August 2018 after serving as the Justice on the Supreme Court of Georgia. Before becoming a judge, she served as the Solicitor General of Georgia and practiced in the Washington, D.C. office of Kirkland and Ellis. After graduating from law school, Judge Grant served as a law clerk to then-judge Brett M. Kavanaugh of the United States Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit. After the discussion between our panelists today, we'll go to audience Q&A if time allows. So please enter any questions for our panelists into the Q&A function at the bottom right of your Zoom window. As always, I'll note that all expressions of opinion on today's program are those of the speakers joining us and not those of the Federalist Society. With that, the virtual floor is yours, Judge Grant. Thank you, Jack. I really appreciate it. Um, Solicitors General are near and dear to my heart. I really treasure the opportunity to represent my home state, and um, I'm excited to hear what all of our panelists have to say today. So I, too, will keep the bio short so we can get to the meat of it, but I wanted to introduce first Benjamin Flowers, who is the Solicitor General of Ohio. Before joining joining the Attorney General's office, Ben worked at Jones Day in Columbus, Ohio. He served as a law clerk for Justice Scalia, and also for Judge Sandra Akuta of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit. Albert Lynn is Chair of Issues and Appeals at Hunton Andrews Kurth LLP. He served as Solicitor General of West Virginia from 2013 to 2017. Before his time as SG, he served as a trial attorney in the Federal Programs Branch of the U.S. DOJ. Um, and he, served, he clerked for Justice Clarence Thomas on the U.S. Supreme Court, Judge William Pryor of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the 11th Circuit, and for Senior Judge Robert Keaton on the U.S. District Court for the District of Massachusetts. And Ryan Park is the Solicitor General of North Carolina. Previously, he practiced at Boyce Schiller. He clerked for Justices Ruth Bader Ginsburg and David Souter of the U.S. Supreme Court, Chief Judge Robert Katzman of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit, and Judge Jed Rakoff of the U.S. District Court for the Southern District of New York. So I appreciate, I welcome all of our panelists and appreciate your participating in this um, discussion with us about the role of the modern um, state solicitor general. So I think for our audience, um, some of you may or may not be as familiar with the inner workings of state state solicitor general offices. And so I thought it'd be helpful to start out with a question from each of our panelists Um, in terms of describing the kind of size and structure of your current or former SG office, um, a little bit about your role and interaction with the attorney general, um, and just give us some background so that we can understand the range of SG units. I'll mention that a lot of them have grown. I know when I was in Georgia, 
Um, I joined the Attorney General's office when the first state solicitor general was appointed, Nels Peterson, who now serves on the Supreme Court of Georgia. And at that time, it was Nels as the solicitor general and me as the um, functional deputy, plus doing a lot of other things. When I became SG, it was me and two deputies and an honors fellow. Now I believe the solicitor general has two deputies, two assistant solicitors general, and then two honors fellows. So a lot of these offices have grown over the last period of time. So I'm interested also in kind of what you all have seen in the structure of your own offices over that time. Um, let's start with Ben Flowers. Sure. Um, so our office, I, I oversee two units. There's, uh, I'll start with the opinions unit, which is probably not what people think about when they think of an SG's office, but I think it's actually pretty common that the SG oversees uh, something like this in a lot of states. Um, basically, the state law permits um, county officials and uh, certain statewide officials to seek opinions on issues of state law from the attorney general. Uh, our opinions unit issues that I oversee that and there are three uh, lawyers in that group. But the, the group that maybe more readily comes to mind when you think of an SG's office is what we would call our appeals unit, the people who do the appeals at the uh, Supreme Court of the United States, Supreme Court of Ohio, Sixth Circuit, and sometimes other courts as well. We have uh, eight attorneys in that group in addition to myself. It's, def it's expanded since I've been there and it's gradually expanded over the years. Um, I think not just in Ohio, but as Judge Grant said in other states, partly because I think uh, attorneys general around the country have seen the work that SG's offices have done. So uh, for, for my large, excellent staff, I think I have to thank uh, Judge Grant and Albert and people who served in this role in other states before I did. Thanks so much. Um, Ryan Park. Yeah, sure. Uh, sure. So, well, first of all, just thank you for having me. Uh, it's really an honor to, uh, to be with this panel. And uh, I've known uh, Ben for a while since he was a fierce rebounder <laughs> on our uh, on our basketball games uh, at, at the court. So uh, this is really, really cool to be here. And I, I haven't met um, Albert and Judge Grant before, but I've long admired you both. So it's really great to be here. Um, so, yeah, I mean, our office is kind of similar, I think, to how Judge Grant uh, described Georgia in terms of the progression. Uh, prior to uh, me coming on board and uh, we, with a new attorney general um, in 2016, uh, the SG's office here was an assistant general and a paralegal, and that was it. <laughs> um, and there had been a time where there had been two attorneys, but they had been uh, downgraded to one. Uh, and you know, in that kind of office environment, uh, it was mostly, um, you know, you serving as lead counsel in, in really big appeals, uh, but with in conjunction with the uh, attorneys that had handled the case previously, uh, and not necessarily entirely in-house, obviously with one attorney, uh, that is not often uh, possible. And when we came in and uh, we dramatically expanded the office to three attorneys uh, and a paralegal, and now we are four attorneys and no paralegal. So, uh, you know, I spend my time <laughs> uh, site checking and, and the like uh, so we can have an extra attorney. Um, but, you know, it actually is a pretty dramatic expansion in terms of what you can do uh, with four attorneys. Uh, you can really do big things with four really good attorneys. Uh, you can uh, litigate uh, path-breaking, you know, state constitutional disputes and, and, ha and easily handle, uh, well, I don't want to say easily, <laughs> but you can handle, uh, you know, contentious uh, you know, multi-state efforts, uh, including at the U.S. Supreme Court, when you have uh, four really uh, strong, dedicated attorneys. And, and that's what's so exciting uh, about uh, an SG's office is, um, 
you get just your you could not have better cases in terms of how interesting and complex they are, um, but you're not in this environment uh, where you're layers upon layers of hierarchy uh, and uh, it's it's pretty uh, you know streamlined in, in terms of effectiveness. Um, I guess one thing I'd I'd say uh, too is um, our office generally uh, oversees all civil appeals uh, in in the state. Um, but we don't have kind of direct supervisory uh, jurisdiction over criminal appeals. And, and that's kind of a big difference between uh, office from office to office. So some states, their SG um, is, uh, you know, a, uh, you know, oversees all criminal appeals uh, and, you know, often directly handles even uh, all civil appeals. And those offices have to just of necessity be much larger uh, than than mine is. Absolutely, thank you. Um, Elder, tell us about West Virginia. Thanks, <clears throat> it's good to be here, Judge. It's good to see you. Um, it, uh, it, you the viewers may pick up on some um, warmness and familiarity between the two of us, which I think reflects maybe something we'll talk about later that the, the state SG community, I think one of the nice things about it is that it, it tends to be, um, um, you tend to work together a lot. Um, a lot of times it's on one side of the aisle or the other, but as we'll talk about, there are things where where um, you know priorities cross the political boundaries, and you get to know people on the other side too. Um, in terms of my um, office, so I was the first solicitor general in West Virginia, and so we kind of went through uh, we went through the evolution of, of being starting with just me as a one man band for probably six to eight months, and then by the time I left. Um, it varied. I, we were, I think, at our height, maybe seven people. There was a, me, a deputy, and then five assistant um, solicitors, although I just sort of, it's hard to keep it straight because people would kind of go in and out, but that was roughly what it was. Um, but there was also, separate from the SG division, um, and, uh, a criminal appellate shop. And so in West Virginia, before I joined the office and under the previous attorney general, there had always been a criminal appellate shop. Uh, and that was sort of what was known as the appellate division in the in the West Virginia Office of Attorney General. And that was a deputy attorney general who then reported to, reported to the SG and I think still does, as well as, um, again, as many as between four and six assistant AGs. And that's because all, all criminal appeals, so prosecutions would be handled by the local county prosecutors, but then all appeals would go up um, through the AG's office. And one of the interesting dynamics there is that the AG's office could, could confess error. And so you did kind of have a really, the part of the reason why you needed such a big staff is that every appeal needed to be you know looked at carefully. Um, in terms of responsibilities, I've always described it as sort of four buckets. Um, and, and I often tell, uh, <laughs> Uh, new folks who are taking uh, SG jobs that they should not ask for as much as I asked for when I <laughs> um, first built the office. But so we had all appeals, which is all civil and criminal appeals. Obviously, criminal appeals were mostly handled by the criminal appellate division, but we would sometimes handle the more controversial and difficult ones. Um, we handled uh, all opinions. Uh, and so that's kind of like Ben, except there was no separate opinions division. So we actually wrote the opinions and then um, I, I would be the one who would ultimately sign them. And so uh, 
for those who are more familiar with the U.S. Uh, Department of Justice, I often described it as kind of the West Virginia version of the Office of Legal Counsel, where you'd have things as as important as you know, is this statute constitutional to things as seemingly trivial as, you know, does this person get an extra parking space, right? Or, you know, is that legal? Or can you, one of the ones we had was, can you use this building? Well, county wanted to know if they could use a building to turn it into a taxidermy museum. Um, it was owned by the county. And there's like this question about whether you could essentially use that for this somewhat private purpose. Um, the third bucket of things was all federal litigation uh, fell under the SG division. And then the fourth was um, uh, being a senior advisor to the AG. And I know Ben and Ryan didn't mention that, but I'm sure it's the same for them, where you're just one of the members of the senior staff who's you know consulted on uh, you know important decisions that the AG needs to make, sometimes policy, sometimes legal. That's great. Thank you all for that um, for that background. Hearing about the different states and you know you joking about the taxidermy museum makes me think of my first oral argument was before the Georgia Court of Appeals and I was defending regulations um, that Georgia had put in place to um, to highlight its Vidalia onion trademark to protect that trademark against certain farming practices. So everything is local. Local. It felt very appropriate that that was my first argument in the Georgia Attorney General's office. Um, so speaking of that, um, let's hear about some war stories. I think um, probably less local than the Vidalia onion trademark issues. But um, can you tell us about if there are any war stories, maybe where you faced a tension between um, the duty to defend the state and a political priority or um, you know anything like that? And if they're not specific examples, then maybe just how you kind of deal with these challenges on a day-to-day -day basis. I'll let anyone who has one who has one top of mind jump in. If not, I'll, I'll call on someone. So help your colleagues by jumping in if you have one right. Sure. right. I, I think I have one that might might be a fun example. Um, yeah, there is this conflict between a duty to defend and um, our own obligation to uh, support and defend the Constitution. And it's different than in the federal system. In, in almost every state, including Ohio, the attorney general is separately elected. So we don't have a unitary executive where the president or where the governor in the state appoints the attorney general. There are a few states like that, but, but not many. Um, so because of that, you can end up in a situation where an agency that's under the governor's oversight takes a position that's contrary to that of the attorney general. And I suppose one way the AG could resolve that is to simply not let the agency appeal since he is uh, ultimately the lawyer for the state. But uh, my boss has taken the view that people elect an attorney general to ensure that laws at least get their day in court so the way he accommodates that while at the same time accommodating his role to support and defend the law is to, uh, when necessary, either put up a screen and have divided teams where somebody's representing the agency, somebody represents him in an amicus brief, or alternatively appointing outside counsel for the agency, and then he could, if he wants, uh, file an amicus brief. The example that came to mind was a case just last year called Twism. Um, the question was basically whether Ohio should... Uh, abandon its version of Chevron deference. And uh, the agency, not surprisingly, was opposed to that. Uh, my, my boss, the attorney general, was in favor of abandoning it and indeed had taken that position quite a few times in the federal context. So it would have been a little awkward to insist otherwise in the state context. And the way he dealt with that was to set up a screen with two different teams. Um, one team represented the, uh, the agency. I was uh, pleased to be put on the team representing the attorney general and arguing for the uh, elimination of the deference doctrine. 
Uh, and so I argued that case, my side, the attorney general side won, which was rewarding. But I, I guess what made this a war story and somewhat uh, it made it a little bit awkward is the person leading the opposite team was my chief deputy. Uh, so they were screened off and, you know, the attorney, he's a fantastic lawyer. So the attorney general made sure that they got good representation. Uh, but we did have to show up to court on the same day, uh, arguing against one another. So that was, that was certainly an interesting experience. Hopefully your personal relationship is still solid after yeah. fighting in court. Anybody else have a, an example of a, a war story on that along those lines? Uh, I mean, I can go next. I, so um, I guess I have a story, but I'll maybe I can start with kind of the some broad observations, kind of pick it up on what Ben said, because there are some things that are really interesting, I think, and unique about the AG's office. And one of them is what Ben just described. I mean, this idea that you can have two teams on opposite sides of a case, um, I think is uh, unique, unique to state AG offices and um, and ultimately a creature, right, of state law, because, uh, you know, you're you could, as a matter of state law, I guess, prohibit that from happening, in which case, um, presumably, if you're going to have different teams, there'd have to be outside counsel supervised by God only knows whom, sometimes maybe the, the governor's office. In West Virginia, it was similar, where you could have two, two um, teams screened off from each other. The, the one thing that was unique from us that it sounds like might have been different from Ohio is we didn't have the power to prevent anyone from appealing with the exception of the criminal appeals, because in the criminal appeals, the state AG ultimately stood in the shoes of the county prosecutor. But in every other situation, the case law in West Virginia held that um, the client is ultimately, the client agency is ultimately the boss. Um, and that is one of the questions that maybe we'll get to later is like, what's the difference between us and the US SG? You know, unlike with USDOJ, where there's literally a statute that says that they are the ultimate decider of the arguments that they're going to make. In our state, uh, the client ultimately made the call. And so this is very, it was sometimes could be kind of an, an awkward situation. And, you know, and and this gets to the duty to defend point. I think if, if there were ultimately the conclusion by the AG that there's just no way that he could represent a particular client agency, then uh, he had an independent right as an independently elected official and as the ultimately the chief legal officer for the state who was elected to speak for the legal interests of the people. He could then intervene himself and 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 represent, you know, speak speak for the state's legal interests. So. Um, all that is to say, there's there's a lot of interesting, um, uh, unique things. And so the two last things I'll say, one thing, and then the war story is, one of the interesting uh, ways that this sometimes came up is there is a state statute, not, not unlike in the federal system, where um, in the challenge to the constitutionality of statute, the parties had to give notice to the AG's office. And one of the ways that the, you sometimes saw this tension between the duty to defend and, and the political priorities is, we didn't have to respond to that. Um, we were given notice of whether we wanted to, and there were situations where, and I won't mention them specifically, but where we got notice of, uh, you know, a constitutional challenge, and we just let it ride, uh, just sort of assumed that the, whoever was defending it was going to do a fine job, and it was something that the AG didn't have a particular interest in getting involved in. Um, the the I guess the war story that I have, um, it was this very strange 
statute involving air evac. Uh, and that's where these, um, um, uh, and Ben, actually, you guys might have had one of these. Maybe I'm, or maybe I'm thinking of Michigan. But there was it's, you know, these things where the helicopter comes right and, and where there's a medical emergency and takes takes you out, uh, you know, helicopters you somewhere for emergency medical services. And they um, basically they passed a law that was inc incredibly protectionist um, and, you know, pretty much blatantly discriminated against like, out, you know, out of state providers. Um, and it was a pet project of the governor who it didn't matter that he was on the other side, but it, it happened that he was a Democrat and he, it, he had had a, a friend who had, you know, been air evac and ended up getting charged through the nose and like the insurance company wouldn't pay for it. And so they, he, he sort of pushed through this bill that, uh, was, some might argue unconstitutional. Um, and, you know, ultimately the question for us, and this gets to the sort of the duty to defend question, right? Like, where's that line? I mean, I think we ultimately concluded that there was a colorable argument to defend it, although it was extremely difficult. Um, and, you know, we ended up defending it, but there was a lot of debate internally about, you know, what do you do about this? And do you take one of these other measures where you allow the governor to hire outside counsel to defend it or, or whatnot? Um. That case is now concluded and and uh, we ended up losing. So those of us who thought maybe there was a problem were ultimately vindicated. Sometimes, sometimes that happens. Um, Ryan, what about you? Yeah, there, there's something to be said uh, for losing with honor. <laughs> We've had to <laughs> go through that process as well. So yeah, I guess uh, I'll get to a, a war story. I thought of something uh, while others were talking, but uh, you know, so, some broader context, I think, uh, that you know, there are major conflicts that occur between the duty to defend uh, and policy, or you know, even jurisprudential priorities uh, of the attorney general, and that really is above my pay grade. I think a, a lot of the things that anyone here listening might have heard of um, are above my pay grade. And uh, I, as uh, Albert mentioned, I, I'm among kind of the group of people that provide policy and constitutional advice uh, to the attorney general, but. Um, I'm not the decision maker in, in that, um, you know, on the category cases that you might have heard, of, and uh, and I'm comfortable with that. Um, you know, you know, and I think this is does relate to the nature of a state AG's office, uh, as um, I think Ben mentioned. We have a divided executive in North Carolina and in most states, and the AG is independently elected here, as they are in mo most states. And critically for my role is that the SG is an AG appointment. It's not a statutory officer. I wasn't confirmed by the legislature. Uh, I'm, you know, not subject to the governor's control. Um, and so, uh, you know, it's a very different, and we'll talk about this later, but very different than the federal system where the SG is a statutory officer. Um, and my perspective uh, on those kinds of high level cases are always, you know, two and a half million people plus voted for uh, my boss to be attorney general to make those kinds of decisions. And uh, I'm, you know, feel privileged to be able to advise him um, but, uh, you know, don't feel like it's my prerogative to, to step in and, uh, and to feel like, uh, you know, that's just not, not, that's not the job. Uh, that's not my role. But that, that being said, and, you know, and often there are circumstances where uh, my even advising role is very limited uh, in that uh, might be because of uh, the dual hat that I, uh, I, ha I wear in terms of being the head of the civil appeals division. Um, 
which is different than being kind of civil sister general being uh, uh, and, and being lead counsel in constitutional cases and that sort of thing. Um, so, uh, you know, I will say that these, uh, but these, th those kinds of high level disputes are pretty rare, even in politically contentious cases. So I have personally defended way more statutes uh, that my, that my boss voted against when he was a state senator than those that he voted for. And uh, that's really just a, a uh, fact, uh, a consequence of kind of the political realities of North Carolina, where my boss was in the minority uh, when he was in the state Senate. So, uh, and I, I can't even think of times where I even spoke to him about most of, most of those cases. Uh, and when I did give updates on, on those cases, uh, I never had any sense that they were being shaped by his political priorities, uh, our defense of, of the case. Uh, and so, so usually when those situations arise, it's way before, um, you know, I am filing a brief. It's not like uh, I have written a brief and then there is some sense that, uh, oh, we have to uh, alter the arguments uh, or even the language based on uh, political priorities. It's those things all happen at the front end um, before I'm, I'm, you know, in, in the weeds in the case. Um, but, you know, you know, and I think as, uh, as Albert mentioned, there's a, a, whole, a whole lot of workaday cases where these kinds of conflicts arise as well. Uh, and often uh, I am the, the most senior official that looks at a case um, that doesn't rise to something you'd hear about in the newspapers or uh, in, uh, in legal circles either. Um, and, and that's just because, I guess, just to give a little bit more insight into the role, uh, at least in North Carolina, I think in most states, what makes this Solicitor General unique and different and why you get like a special title is you're kind of like the, the, the most senior official for a state whose job it is to be a practicing attorney. Um, so I am not at the top of the org chart uh, in my office, but everyone above me doesn't write briefs and go to court and argue cases and, and, and that sort of thing. Um, and so often things just, you know, they end with me because they just don't get to the level um, that other that people above me are interested in. Um, so uh, I guess I'll, I'll give my example, although it does arise in a, in a criminal case and one where I wasn't the SG yet, um, uh, but I think it's, it's kind of funny. So uh, this get, got some, you know, local news press where there was, uh, it's, it's a criminal case called State v. Ellis. Um, and uh, a guy had been uh, stopped while driving um, because he uh, flipped the bird <laughs> to a cop. It's kind of like an anti-cop message that he was trying to deliver. <laughs> At least that's what he was saying. Uh, and the cop stopped him and, and searched him and it was a big thing. Uh, and the lower courts had held that, you know, giving the finger to a cop, it provides reasonable suspicion of a crime. Uh, and that's sufficient to, to stop a driver. Uh, and so, uh, you know, this was, and there was a first amendment defense. And so we're often uh, heavily involved in criminal cases where there's uh, a, a first amendment defense or a constitutional challenge to the prosecution. Uh, and so we were brought in to kind of assess what was going on here. Uh, and there was kind of, you know, this automatic defense as, as we do for almost all of our criminal appeals. Uh, and then when we studied the issue and we really didn't think there was a, a, a good faith argument uh, that, you know, merely get making an offensive gesture to a, a police officer was reasonable suspicion of a crime. Um, but, you know, it, it was kind of on the margin, right? Uh, and you could make the argument and lose. 
and or but then there was this First Amendment component, and there were a lot of out of uh, jurisdiction cases that had held that you know making an offensive gesture at a cop doesn't mean that you have committed a crime, and that in itself is is also not a crime. It's not you know disorderly conduct or something uh, to merely make a you know gesture that was. You know, the, the people are driving, <laughs> you know, so there's no kind of like, you know, in-person confrontational aspect of it too. So it was uh, uh, a cleaner case from the First Amendment. Uh, and so, yeah, we, we uh, you know, in consultation, of course, uh, with our, our criminal folks decided that, um, you know, we, we would uh, confess error in this case, essentially, uh, and not claim that uh, this stop was valid. Um, and, you know, that was something that, that ended with, with us. Um, and, uh, it, you know, it raised a lot of difficult questions in terms of this core issue of the duty to defend, because often it arises in, in these things where it's like something so contentious and everyone's talking about it, like reproductive, uh, rights or, you know, elections. And, and, and so there's always this question of what are they doing and, and why are they doing it? Um, but for this, it really was us just trying to see if there's a good faith basis for us to try to defend this conviction. Uh, and, but there was no controlling precedent, right? So, so what do you do? in that circumstance uh, is your duty to defend the conviction at all costs, uh, even if there is uh, not a case that the North Carolina Supreme Court has held saying, uh, you know, you have a right to do this and, and not be uh, detained. Um, so, so yeah, and, and we came out on, on in favor of saying that there didn't have to be an explicit precedent that we would uh, use our judgment. That's a, that, I think that's a really interesting point that when we think of duty to defend, we often think of high profile issues like some of the ones you've described. Um, others a few years ago, there was a lot of conversation around same sex marriage laws and the duty to defend. But as you point out, the duty to defend can also involve specific convictions or specific actions taken by state officials or even potentially policy differences. Um, between the attorney general and the legislature or the past legislature. Does anyone have any insights on whether you see those types of duties to defend differently or the same as one another? I, don't, I think I see them as the same. I, I guess what I think of when I think of the duty to defend, um, what I think of being a key thing for us to remember uh, <clears throat> is that the value of having an SG, as I see it, is really twofold. On the one hand, you have someone with appellate expertise, um, and that's obviously valuable. But you also have someone who's a repeat player, who's not engaged in politics on a day-to-day -day basis, who at least has the ability, the potential to be someone who the courts they interact with can can trust. And I tell my, you know, I tell my deputies all the time that I really want them to tell me if I'm wrong, and I want them to tell me before I'm standing at the podium when I can't do anything about it. Um, and, the re and the reason I say that to them is that credibility is really hard to get it very, very easy to lose. Um, so I think in all of the things we do, whether we're representing the facts of a situation, deciding what to defend, when to defend it, um, I think there are a lot of various options, but we need to, we need to have a rule that guides our conduct. Um, it, that's sort of how I think about it. I know that doesn't give a bright line rule for what you should do, but I think you do need to have a rule. And I can even give an example. This isn't duty to defend, but we, we had a case recently where we briefed um, a Sixth Circuit case. Uh, and in the moot, the day before, we learned that there was a fact that ended up being quite relevant that had never been revealed to us before, but it came to light. And it, it wasn't 
been a difficult decision what to do. We had to inform the court because it potentially, you know, had a bearing on uh, what would happen. And it was, um, it was frustrating for me. It was certainly frustrating for the attorney who had to stand up and admit that this factual representation we made, we just learned was not actually um, true. But I think it's critical to do those things because, um, again, if you once you lose that credibility, um, it's usually gone for good. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'd sort of couple observations. The first is I totally agree with Ben. I think um, at least my own personal view is I see the duty to defend the same way, whether they're, you know, controversial cases or not. I think it's sort of the same line. Um, to that, however, you know, this gets to something that Ryan said before. Um, uh, at the end of the day, we mean, the call was the boss's, right? And so, I mean, I was the one, I was able to to give him advice. And um, as Ben and Ryan have both said, I mean, there's, the, we, as the SG, it was in a sort of a unique position as the, one of the highest ranking um, folks in the office who practiced on a sort of day-to-day -day basis and, and, and was, I think by design, some kept out of a lot of the political stuff. And so you were able to give, um, you know, uh, uh, advice that I think was perceived as sort of more purely legal, but but ultimately at the end of the day, it was a judgment call for the attorney general. The other thing that I wanted to to mention is, and this gets back to something I mentioned earlier about state law, because I do think that, um, you know, duty to defend uh, can be and often is shaped by and influenced by what your state laws are. Uh, I mean, I, you know, in the abstract, I think I, I haven't, um, thought as much about this, I think, as some others have. But, you know, if I were to just sort of randomly, you know, if I, not random, if I were to sort of pick a line, if someone said, you know, what would you say it would be? Um, I would probably say that you need to defend, you know, things that are duly enacted for which there's a colorable or, you know, you know, non-sanctionable argument um, to defend it. But but West Virginia law also provides, and I mentioned this earlier, that the because the attorney general is an independently elected chief legal officer and is meant and is elected precisely to represent the state's legal interests and what he views as the state's legal interests. I mean, there is a sort of a competing duty there, right? Um, for him, that I think arguably diminishes or 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 um maybe heightens the the level of what kind of argument. Um, there has to be available to defend something that he might disagree with, at least as a legal matter. So it, I think it's, I mean, it's, um, you know, he has this independent obligation, you know, charged to him under the law to speak to what he thinks the right view of the law is. And so, you know, I imagine different states do it differently, but, but I think there's a good argument that that, that may, um, but that certainly should have some effect on, you know, uh, how robust his duty is to defend a law with which he disagrees, certainly legally, um, but maybe even as a policy matter. Thanks, those are all interesting comments. Um, my next question, I think, brings in threads of several things we've talked about. I know, Albert, you mentioned the warmth and friendship that can develop amongst SGs because often states are working together um, you've all talked about the need to check with your bosses on various calls um, in the lines of authority. 
How do you handle multi-state um, multi-state efforts? I know when I was in Georgia, potential amicus briefs from multi-state issues are you know constantly being slung through the computers, plus multi-state actual litigation efforts. So how how do you guys approach that, um, or did you approach that in your positions? And what are some things that you think are important to think through in those in those um, decisions? Um, I can jump in. I mean, it, we do quite we do it quite a few different ways. So sometimes we'll have a brief that we either think or hope can get you know every state could potentially join, and something like that we'll probably send out through uh, you know NAG or at least get it to every SG to make sure. Tell, that tell they, everyone what NAG is. NAG is the National Association of Attorneys General, and they have uh, they operate a service basically where we can circulate amicus briefs to to our fellow SGs, other states. Um, so for a, you know, a brief um, could be a criminal procedure issue where every state will presumably be on the same side or some, something of that nature uh, may, may go out through that. Um, sometimes we'll have an idea that it's going to be a particular group of states are the only ones who may have any interest. And uh, in that circumstance, we'll send it to the people who may have interest. Because if we know other folks are on the other side, we're probably not going to waste our time sending them the brief or give them the advantage of reading the brief before it's filed. Uh, and then sometimes we have um, briefs that have a more uh, narrow focus. So for the, the easiest example of that is sometimes at the en banc stage in particular, we have an issue where really it's a Sixth Circuit issue. Um, other states don't have much interest in what the Sixth Circuit says about this particular issue. And in that circumstance, I'll, I'll email you know Michigan, Tennessee, and Kentucky and say, if it's us, if, if we're the ones seeking on bank review, for example, or we're the ones running the appeal, say, would one of you mind doing an amicus brief? Sometimes they'll reach out to us. Um, but, but that's a way where we can sort of highlight to the Sixth Circuit that this is an issue that affects all the states in the circuit. And we're not, this isn't, um, you know, there's no reason to bring in other states that could make it look too political or something. This is, this is a, an, a non-political issue. And we're all here because it means a great deal to us. Uh, so that's that's another, I think, particularly useful function amicus briefs can serve. Yeah, I can jump in here. I mean, I think it's possible that my experience in, in this arena is actually the least interesting, but I'll just uh, go through it. I mean, I think that there really are two entirely separate categories in my mind uh, between amicus briefs that other states have written and were asked to join, and we go through a process of deciding whether to join, and things that we uh, feel very strongly about uh, and decide to try to lead on. And, uh, you know, in North Carolina, at least, we have a lot of uh, contentious constitutional litigation that's just about North Carolina. And so uh, I think uh, based on that, and in part just on uh, the WASA's priorities, uh, when we're working in the multi-state, we're usually trying to find areas where there's broad agreement. Uh, and so uh, we often uh, are, or we very, very rarely are even close to a lead, playing a lead role in something where, for example, states are suing the federal government, whether it's one administration or the other, uh, or trying to defend the federal government when they're being sued. Um, we, at least in terms of things that we're leading on, we kind of stay away from those most contentious fights. And you know, so one good example in this area is we have kind of a long-running partnership with uh, the Indiana uh, uh, SG's office uh, to uh, present kind of bipartisan views on robocalls. So, and that has led to a couple of Supreme Court cases, uh, kind of to my surprise. Um, but also, there's a lot of other 
um, cases working their way through uh, the federal appellate courts and even state courts sometimes. Uh, and you know, I think what when you see that, if the court is attuned to the fact that this is a bipartisan brief uh, with a broad bipartisan coalition of states, then it kind of pierces any sense that this is uh, a bunch of you know elected officials trying to make um, elected official type policy arguments to the courts. Um, and I think it just adds a, a, a huge amount of heft to the argument you're making if it's a broad coalition. Uh, and we had a, a, a case uh, where it was in North Carolina, in North Carolina Supreme Court, uh, where I'm pretty sure it was the broadest coalition of uh, states in terms of numbers uh, that have ever filed a brief in our state Supreme Court. At least that's what I've been told. And uh, it was a state taxing authority case. Uh, kind of a follow-on to, to Wayfair and the online sales tax issues. And, uh, you know, some of our opposing amici were trying to create the sense uh, that, um, you know, this is, um, uh, there are potentially some sort of policy valence to this case, or there's even a partisan valence to this case. And I think when you have, you know, Alaska and, uh, um, you know, very, uh, you know, conservative uh, uh, AG signing on to the brief, along with you know, states like New York and, and, and Rhode Island and that sort of thing, it kind of created this sense of this is actually just about state authority. It's not about politics. And, uh, and that was very helpful. We very recently in Ohio had a, a case that exemplifies that. We're, um, it's ongoing. We, we, we saw certiorari in a case called Ohio v. CSX. And uh, it's basically about whether federal law preempts state laws that w- regulate how long railroads can block grade crossings for. And mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we got joins from AGs of many different views, whether it's jurisprudence or politics or anything else, different, uh, you know, very different geographies, which can matter for how often this actually comes up. And, and I, I found that I was so grateful for that um, because it does show, as, as Ryan is saying, that it's an issue that cuts across any of those issues. It's, a, it's, a, it's an issue of importance to states as states generally. Um, so we've touched on this a little bit, but going back to the state versus federal issue, how would you all see your jobs as different than or similar to the United States Solicitor General's job? Um, I'll start. I'll start because um, you know, having been the first. Solicitor General, at least that anybody can really remember in West Virginia. One of the things that I really wanted to do was to try to establish the credibility with the state Supreme Court that the USSG has with the federal, with the US Supreme Court. And, you know, part of that was obviously do good work, right? Elevate what we do, um, participate as as amicus in cases where the voice of the AG's office is important or the voice of the state is important. Um, and you know, one of one one of the things that I did um, is I, I went up and sat in the Supreme Court every time somebody from the office was arguing. Um, not at the council table, right, but just in the back, just to sort of convey to the court that, um, you know, we took appellate litigation seriously, we took the state's voice and role seriously. Um, and so I think in, in that sense, it was something that we tried to emulate with the, uh, you know, that the U.S., you know, the, the whole 10th justice thing at the U.S. Supreme Court, we were, you um, 
at least trying to build up that credibility. And I think we've I think we've done that. Um, I mean, Lindsay, who's the current SG, could probably speak better to kind of how that's whether that's carried on, uh, that perception is carried on. But I I um, that is one thing that that we we definitely tried to kind of pattern ourselves on the federal system. Do you think, Albert, before we go to whoever else has a comment, do you think that state SGs have also um, garnered more credibility with the United States Supreme Court justices in terms of um, being able to bring that higher level of appellate advocacy to that court on a regular basis? Yeah, I mean, I, I think so. I mean, we've we've certainly seen quotes right from um, justices who have talked about that. I mean, I think Scalia is on on record as having said that um, you know the trend of state SGs is a is a positive. Um, I I remember before I took the job, I I called Justice Thomas and asked him if I should take it, and he he told me that. Um, it was important for people with our, you know, our experiences collectively, the four of us, right? The kinds of experiences that we've had and the training and education um, that we've had the privilege of having to go and serve in state government to provide states uh, a stronger appellate voice. So I think so. I mean, some perhaps not coincidentally or coincidentally, but not, uh, not uh, coincidentally, but, but on topic is that there was a, an article linked on SCOTUS blog this morning about, you know, state SGs being poised to have a big, big week mm -hmm. this week. I think, um, uh, I can't remember, so Nebraska, the Nebraska SG is arguing uh, and New Jersey and, and, and New York arguing against each other this week. So I think the answer is yes. And I think we have actually the sort of empirical evidence to show it. Um, um, so, yeah, short answer is I think so. Great. Any other thoughts on those issues from Ben or Ryan? Well, I'll just jump in. This is kind of a non sequitur, but one, one thing that I think is interesting is that, um, you know, state standing is a big topic uh, in part because uh, states, uh, coalitions of states are often suing the federal government um, uh, when big things happen. Uh, and so there, it always raises this question of do they have standing uh, to do so? And if you look through the briefs, I actually went back uh, and looked through the briefs in a lot of these very contentious cases over the last, I guess, six years now, where it's, uh, you know, New York against uh, Trump or Biden against Nebraska. And of, of course, you're seeing these multi-state amicus briefs, um, but on both sides, there's kind of a detente that we're not going to go after state standing uh, to win a particular case. Mm -hmm. uh, and so uh, you have in the in the, the Nebraska case, for example, uh, North Carolina joined, joined coalition of states uh, supporting the, the federal government's position, um, but we didn't go after state standing, uh, you know, the, the, the states that had sued. Uh, and the same is true in, in a lot of the Trump era cases where, um, you know, uh, Texas or, 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 or whatever would, would file uh, an amicus brief um, and they wouldn't go after uh, whether, uh, you know, New York had standing, for example. And, and you would see this, uh, I'm sure that it was a topic of discussion uh, among those coalitions as well, so so there was a census case. Uh, I think it was I think it was Trump versus New York. <laughs> its final caption uh, where that was dismissed on standing grounds. But if you go back and look at the Amicus brief, I think Louisiana led on it. Uh, they didn't go after New York standing, and so I think we all kind of agree uh, that it's in uh, states institu institutional interests uh, to have robust state standing, and uh, and we're not going to sacrifice that to win a particular case. Yeah, and I, and I think that goes to that credibility point I mentioned earlier. If you're 
flipping your position on state standing every presidential administration, <laughs> I think it's it becomes harder to view you as a, an honest broker. Now, look, sometimes we'll make arguments uh, and either later reconsider or they just are rejected. And then we we're not going to kneecap ourselves by keeping by continuing to make a losing argument. But um, generally speaking, uh, yeah, I think that's right. And I think it's a good trend. I think if we are changing our views on those fundamental issues every four years, that's that's a sign that something, something that, that's, that's a sign that we're losing our ability to persuade the court, I think. Mm -hmm. Those are all great points. We have a, um, I'll move to one question from an audience member because um, it gets at a, a different angle on some of the institutional issues. Um, David Burge says, a lot of governors have an executive council in their office and many state agencies have a chief agency council. Um, how is your relationship with those lawyers? How do you how do you manage through those? What's the working relationship? Um, he adds, although I can only repeat and not personally echo as a Wake Forest alum, he adds go heels. I think it's only fair to say it and not endorse it. Um, so that may that may leave you, um, Ryan, with the first up to answer that question, given the comment and your basketball goal in the background. But if anyone yeah. else wants to jump in, we can we can allow that too. Uh, yeah, sure. I'll, I'll, I'll jump in there. Uh, yeah, so I think because AGs are independently elected, and you do have this possibility, and it's it's live uh, in some states and has been in North Carolina in the past, where the AG and the governor are uh, members of uh, different political parties. Um, but my experience has always been uh, where uh, you know my my boss uh, is a Democrat and the governor is what is as well, uh, and so we, we've always had a good working relationship. Uh, with the um, uh, their general counsel's office, and you know, I think what I'd say there, which might be helpful, is when we were in this period where I spent a year of my life defending executive orders related to COVID, um, and that was my life for a year. And uh, you know, the orders were coming fast and furious, and then they'd immediately be challenged in, in multiple cases. Uh, and so there was this kind of immediate feedback loop between, uh, you know, legal advice that I might be giving to the governor's office saying, well, if you structure it in this way, it has a greater chance of being upheld. Uh, and then we'd find out <laughs> two weeks later whether I was right or not. Um, and so, you know, I think when the governor's office uh, is doing a lot that leads to uh, that kind of litigation, then we have a very close working relationship. Uh, but, but I'd like to say, you know, because we are plural executive, you know, we have and again, in North Carolina, we're kind of maybe unique. I'm not quite sure, but you know, many uh, executive officials are members of the opposing political party. And uh, at least in cases where I am working with their general counsel, um, we're all on the same team. And I, I very much uh, uh, have the mentality that if I am counsel, especially counsel in the case, you know, I've entered an appearance and I'm writing briefs and I'm trying to win the case and nothing else. Uh, and if there's something else uh, in, in terms of uh, that might be affecting uh, my ability to play in that role. My my goal is for that to happen before uh, I've entered an appearance and taken on the mantle of trying to win the case. Great points. Great points. Um, yeah, I don't have much oh, more. We we have a pretty open line of communication. Of course, sometimes there may be some disagreement, but I think we're pretty good at uh, you know warning one another when that may happen. Uh, it probably also helps that Governor Dewine was himself Attorney General Dewine before. Mm -hmm. uh, becoming governor, so I think understands the the role. Yeah, I mean, it, it um, judge. It's an interesting question because it it does come back to this 
what I find to be this fascinating difference between the feds and the state, right? I mean, I, I was I was the DOJ attorney for several years at federal programs. And um, again, I think I alluded to this earlier. I mean, there's literally a statute that says that the attorney general of the United States like makes the call as to what the position of the United States is in court. Now, there are independent agencies, and that's kind of tricky and interesting and in whether what role DOJ plays there. But for the executive branch agencies in the United States, like the AG decides what arguments you're going to make. That, at least in West Virginia, is not the case, right? I mean, I think I said earlier, there's a there's case law that says that um, the attorney general relationship with its client agencies is much closer to just your standard, uh, you know, private party relationship. And so, um, and but then you had this competing, you know, issue with the attorney general being the independently elected chief legal officer for the state. So anyway, that's all a very long way of saying that um, uh, having been in private practice before I was uh, the SG, I mean, we treated those relationships, you know, very much like the way we had clients in private practice. I mean, those were our clients and we gave them the advice now. You know, to the extent that they're, you know, always kind of lurking in the background, right, was, well, what is the AG's independent view of this? Because he has that power. Um, but it was, um, so, you know, so the, the short answer is, I, I mean, we we tried to maintain a good and cordial relationship because they were our clients and that's how we viewed it. Absolutely. And in some states, um, it may have an impact on um, something else that leads me to the next question, which is, budget for outside counsel. I think sometimes governors have different budget authority and different budget options than attorneys general do. So I think sometimes I know in, in Georgia that can be a point of discussion. Um, and one question we have from an anonymous attendee is one option for an AG slash SG in a difficult duty to defend situation is to appoint outside counsel. But that is often quite expensive to the state. Do any of the panelists have experience with navigating that tension? In other words, does the potential cost to the state enter the duty to defend conversation when outside counsel is an option on the table? Um, you may or may not be able to say much about this, um, but I think it's an interesting question about how those, those extra layers that you really never have in the federal government can apply in, in state, um, state defense issues. I don't have too much to add only be, I mean, I'm aware when cases are assigned to outside counsel, I'm not really involved in the decision. Um, I'm sure that would be part of the consideration, but it's not something I've been personally involved with. Got it. So the same for the same for the rest of you. All right. Well, um, I guess this is a, a wrap up question and then we'll, we'll see if we have more, um, more questions from the audience will be interesting, but what was what was the most unexpected thing that has popped up for any of you as you've had your job as Solicitor General? I know there are a lot of surprises, um, probably both on a big scale and a small scale. And I'm curious to hear what you've what you've learned or what has been the most surprising thing that has come up for you. I'm going to make Albert go first. <laughs> um, sure, I'll start. <laughs> yeah, I, so I think the thing that I've, um, it's it seems weird in retrospect that it was a surprise, but the, um, the sort of, the amount of the trial by fire in terms and the baptism by fire in terms of leadership skills um, was, was, I think, 
more surprising to me than I uh, had expected. But again, in retrospect, it, it seems like obvious, right? Um, you're going in as the, you know, one of the sort of top lawyers for a elected state official, you know, you would think that that would be the case. But there were a lot of, um, th there was a lot of, uh, I came out uh, a far better uh, manager and leader, I think I was, than I went in. I'll I'll jump in while the other two are thinking and say, um, one thing that I learned that was surprising was how quickly it's possible to do a good job. I think I've talked with other former solicitors general about this when you go um, into different situations, especially back into private practice, the timelines that are set out for things um, it seem extraordinarily longer than they need to be sometimes. I know in one case that, um, one multi-state that Albert and I worked on together, I think that we proposed a reply brief timeline of something like 24 hours um, for a complicated jurisdictional issue. And you realize that if you really want to get it done and stay up all night, um, you can do it. So I think that's, you know, um, necessity breeds efficiency. And so that's one thing that I learned. And one thing that I try to remember in my current job is that it is possible to get things done um, on a pretty quick timeline if you need to do it. That's I think that's bad news for those of us who still practice before you, people like you that, you, <laughs> that that's the lesson you take away from it. So. Well, I mean, it, it, but I, I want to echo that and I can give a concrete example. Um, I was and, and this will also go to my unexpected point, which is how. Um, how informal a lot of the work that we do is with the other AGs in terms of which SG ends up taking the lead on something. Um, the OSHA case to start with that the the fortuity point was um th those challenges to osha regulations have to be filed in an appellate court and if they are filed in more than one appellate court then within 10 days um some organization whose name i can't even recall does a lottery and they pick the circuit um in that case i believe every circuit except the federal circuit had a had a ball in the lottery machine they pick the six which is just random chance we had been doing a lot of the work on the briefing and everything, which was a lot of uh, chance and just how things got divvied up. And so we were fortunate to be able to take the lead on that, which ultimately led to a Supreme Court argument. Um, so that shows how like unplanned a lot of these uh, situations can be. And then in terms of for, getting things- For the record, and I'll like, I won't interrupt you permanently, but I'd like to say, I think that the ping pong ball is heavily weighted in the sixth because the multi-state Waters of the United States challenge had a similar circuit decision that one also landed into the sixth so you guys were <laughs> especially lucky or unlucky i don't know yeah uh, well it worked out whatever whether it was rigged or not uh, i was happy with <laughs> the, but the um in, in terms of what you were saying about doing good work quickly in that case there were i don't even know how many um petitioners but many and um and you want to be one of the first to get in but i also really wanted in our our application for a stay to have uh, a response to the Sixth Circuit's opinion. I wanted to have the negative case, not just our positive arguments. Um, so it was a Friday in December. I will not forget this. It was around Christmas, started watching Home Alone with the kids. Um, <laughs> and I got a call from Henry Whitaker, who's Florida's SG. And he said, are you going up? And I said, wait, eventually probably, but what are you, what are you talking about? He's like, well, the, the ruling came out. I said, it did? It's like seven o'clock at night, this thing came out. I drove back downtown, I called my team. I was writing responses to the Sixth Circuit's argument, sending the pair, like each section to my 
Paris fellow, who's a one-year fellow coming off a clerkship we have, he would site check them, send them back to me. I'd put them in the brief. I think we got on file right around midnight. And then um, we had to serve all those 100 parties or whatever. So we had, there were, I think there were four or five of us. I bought everyone pizza so they'd come back. And we were printing off on every print. Uh, the, the, our print shop was closed. So we were printing off using every printer we could find, all these applications. They smelled like smoke because the machines were <laughs> hot. And then we stayed up till 3 a.m. packing FedEx envelopes and I mailed them in the morning. So that was, uh, you know, in less than 12 hours, we added the negative case, got hundreds of copies printed and got them in the mail. And that was, um, I, I won't say it was fun, but in retrospect, um, it, it was rewarding, as you say, to see that you can do uh, good work quickly if, if need be. Nicely done. Um, last but not least, Ryan, what's your what's your general response to this question? Oh, sure. Well, I guess I'll say, and I'll be quick, mindful of the time. Uh, part of my thinking in going to work for a state attorney general was uh, leaving the, the D.C. hothouse. And maybe uh, I was thinking this would be like kind of a good work-life balance type job. And uh, that was uh, completely uh, a failure. <laughs> <laughs> it really is just uh, very hectic. Um, but I will say that uh, the sheer variety and number of kind of at-bats you get in, in this role is just extraordinary. Uh, and I was talking to a friend of mine uh, who, uh, you know, has been a, is a partner at one of these um, appellate shops uh, in, uh, you know, their big law firm. And she said, like, oh, well, you don't write your own briefs, right? And I was like, <laughs> <laughs> we have four people in my office and, like, hundreds of cases. Uh, so, of course, uh, you're kind of involved uh, on a uh, on a really granular level in, in your cases. And, and that's really fun. Uh, you know, it's you kind of doing the real work of of being uh, an appellate lawyer, especially on the state law issues, because some a lot of us anyway came from practices that were really heavily focused on federal appellate courts, and so we just didn't have that much engagement with state constitutions. But there's so many interesting issues there, and that that we by necessity litigate all the time. So that's been fun to echo your point. That's absolutely right. Well, I think those are two great ways to close. And I hope that this last part of the conversation hasn't scared away any future solicitors general <laughs> who may be listening in on the call. I think there's just about no better job than representing a state as a solicitor general. So thank all three of you for taking the time to talk with me today and to share some of your experience with those who are listening in on the on the call, watch the call. On behalf of the Federal you, Society, I'd like to echo Judge Grant's thanks, and thanks to you, Judge Grant, as well. And thank you to our audience for tuning in to today's program. You can check out our website, fedsoc.org, or follow us on all the major social media platforms at FedSoc to stay up to date. With that, we are adjourned. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Teleform, a podcast of the Federal Society's practice groups. For more information about the Federal Society, the practice groups, and to become a Federal Society member, please visit our website at fedsoc.org.